Before we get started, I wanted to let you know we have a new podcast to announce. It's called Friends in Formation, and we just released our first full episode. You can find it on our website, renovare.org, under the podcast tab. In this book, I write, if we cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to us or to those we love, how do we trust God at all? I like literally typed that question in my computer, read the question out loud, got up from the computer, but I didn't come back for a week because I was like, I don't know what to say. I'm supposed to write a book on this and I don't have an answer to that. Welcome to the Renovare podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is North American Anglican priest and author Tish Harrison Warren. I spoke with Tish about her new book titled Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. The book just happens to be our next read in the Renovare Book Club. If you'd like to join us, you can find out more information on our website, renovare.org, and things officially start up February 8th. I talked with Tish over video call from her home in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Tish, you wrote a book about a comp. Is it Compline or Compline? I always forget the way to pronounce it. I say Compline. Compline. But a lot of people who have interviewed me, et cetera, have said Compline. But I say Compline. I, I didn't exactly mean for the book to be a about well, I don't think the book is about Compline, um, but it is framed around one prayer in Compline, and part of the way that happened was just biographical, like my own story. I had prayed Compline for a number of years. It wasn't like I found Compline on one dramatic night or something. I, I don't even remember when I started praying, and I remember that a uh, church down the street from me, when I lived in Austin, had this sung Compline. It was a Catholic church and you could go and it was completely silent and the sanctuary was completely dark. And it was just this male chorus, like men in the choir, like nine or 10 of them would sing these prayers in a darkened sanctuary with maybe just like a few candles. And it was just silent. And I loved that because I would just go and rest in prayer, rest in these men singing prayers and that time of silence. I was in ministry at the time, but that was a place where I didn't have to show up. I didn't have to, you know, <laughs> sing a worship song or feel any certain. I could really just sort of sit in the darkness and stillness and pray. But then I, on my own, would pray it not every night, but a few times a week. And then it, in 2017, it was it was a really hard year for me. We moved across the country to from Austin to Pittsburgh, and I lost my father. My dad passed away, and I had a miscarriage and then a hard pregnancy with where I was like on bed rest and in and out of the hospital. And then we lost our son that year in July. And so there was about six months that were just really hard. And I was exhausted. I felt spiritually like just flattened. But then also nights became really hard. Like 
during the day I would kind of get busy, but nights there was this empty hours of stillness. And so grief, anxiety, all the questions I was dealing with would kind of come roaring to the surface. And I didn't know how to sit with that. And I would distract. I would go to watching Netflix or being online or political debate or work. So nights really became these deeply anxious times for me. And so um, in the middle of that, I, I just avoided, avoided, avoided. And I knew that wasn't healthy or that wasn't forming me well. I wasn't encountering God. I was just like getting sadder and more empty. But I didn't know how to pray. And it didn't feel like I could gin much up right then. It didn't feel like a time where I could like, you know, come to God and have to like figure out what to say. And so I came, I fell back on this practice that I had done of Compline. It was through a counselor who challenged me, like leave nights empty, like get a glass of wine, read a book, sit in stillness, like let yourself cry, let yourself deal, you know, journal. Like, and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. It It's probably a hundred days that I would like start with that. And then I would like end up at like one in the morning, like doom scrolling, like (laughs) it was was 2017 and Trump had just been inaugurated. And so everybody had lots to say and then watching like whatever cat videos and then doom scrolling some more and then sort of collapsing into sleep and waking up sadder. And so it was, but eventually I would come back to this prayer of Compline. It was good because I felt like I couldn't pray and I needed words from other people. I needed the church to sort of help me back into prayer, but it needed to be not like chipper or shiny. I was trying around this time to do like a devotional app from someone, but it was so like, Jesus has got you and things are good. And then like the heat, like was very, um, it was optimistic, which is fine, but it was, it was really tidy and really cheerful and really like, it was almost saccharine, like Jesus makes things happy. And it was just like, absolutely not where I was. I needed a place that guided me into prayer, but that recognized like things are broken. Things are hard. Things, there's danger in the world and there's darkness in the world. And Compline, because it is nighttime prayers, it has this sort of almost (laughs) life and death sort of emotion to it. There is a real sense of vulnerability, I think, in the prayer practice itself, like in through the prayers and just our, our weakness and need for God is really expressed in it. And so I was able to kind of throw myself into, throw myself onto, is a better way of saying it, these prayers. When I couldn't pray, they were a way that said, okay, here's some words you can pray. And this is going to sort of honor the complexity of all of your questions and fears and doubts and grief and loss. And so there's one prayer in particular is keep watch dear Lord prayer that became really important to me. And I didn't really want to write a book about suffering. I wanted to write a book about other things, um, theology and human flourishing and which is good. Those are all good things, but I had this idea for this book and it was like, I couldn't let it go. It just kept coming and showing up and sort of demanding to be written. And part of that, I think, was I had some very significant questions about how do you trust God or do I trust God or how do I keep trusting God? 
And this prayer, sort of meditating and wrestling with this prayer, gave me a concrete way into those questions. That's such a big question. And I didn't know how to grapple with it. And I think that this prayer, because it calls for God in very specific instances of pain and struggle, like it names sickness, it names sleep, it names weariness, it names suffering, affliction, death, it, and joy, even it like names these things and ask God into them. I needed those sort of containers for my own ways of wrestling with this question of where is God in the dark? So that this book was sort of, this this prayer was my way into those questions. Where did the questions take you? I mean, there was nothing wrong with the other book ideas I had, but the reality was that I was sort of using theology or these other ideas to avoid the real question and to kind of cork the real question in my life, which was, how do you trust God? I write this in the book, but I, there's a, I tell a story about a pastor of mine in college saying you cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening. And that's self-evident in some ways, it's of course, but I like, don't like to say that out loud. I like, don't like to deal with that reality or that part of God. And so him saying it out loud in a sermon, particularly in, a, in the context he did, was after the congregation, we had, the congregation had lost a, a, a three-year-old boy and the congregation had died. And it was about three months after that, that he said this in a sermon. And it just floored me. It's a very obvious truth, but it was one that we don't say it aloud. We don't talk about that very much. At least I didn't. In many ways, like I'm a priest, like I've been to seminary, I've written about the question of theodicy, how can God be good and all powerful and bad things regularly happen in the world? Like I have an answer to these things. It's not like I'd never asked these questions. I could answer the question in my brain, but there was something in my heart that was like, where are you? Are you even there? Do you see me? Do you see this? In this book, I write, if we cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to us or to those we love, how do we trust God at all? And I stopped writing for like over a week. I write, you know, when I have, particularly if I have a contract on a book, I write on it every day, but I couldn't, I didn't have any, I didn't have an answer. So I, I just didn't <laughs> like literally typed that question in my computer, <laughs> read the question out loud, got up from the computer and didn't come back for a week or so. Cause I was like, I don't know what to say. I don't have an answer. I'm supposed to write a book on this and I don't have an answer to that. And it was like, yeah, that's why you have to write this book because everything else you were dealing with is trying to avoid this question. And so as a writer, I had to write tens of thousands of words and then whittle them down and read people like Scott Cairns at the end of suffering. We, we were talking a second ago about my, how much I love Scott Cairns, but he wrote a book called The End of Suffering, which is a beautiful book about these kinds of questions and struggles. So I, I had to read others and write on, on my own. This is how God speaks to me. I'm a writer. I don't come to a conclusion and then write it. I write what I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> I often I'm writing things and I'm like, <laughs> I didn't know I knew that until yeah. it's, it's written down. This book was me having to wrestle with these questions. So 
what did I come to? Well, I didn't come to like a little simple answer. I mean, if I did, I would have written a blog post, not a book, right? If it was like, and the answer is blank. <laughs> um, but I'll say in general, some things I came to is like, first of all, I think this question of quote unquote theodicy, how can God be good and all powerful and bad things happen in the world is not at the end of the day, an intellectual question. It's a longing it's a longing for God to come and make things right. We long for actual action on the part of God. We don't want an answer. We want redemption. We want all things to be made new. And if there was some little answer, it would never satisfy us because what we what we are longing for is things to be made right. So because of that, I don't think this will ever be resolved for us, for me, until things are made right by God himself. And so there is a sense that we have to learn to endure this mystery and endure this longing and um, sort of surf the waves of this of this struggle because what what we are waiting for is God's work in the world. But like not a math equation, right? It's not that we're not waiting for a, the next theology book that's going to solve this. Like we're waiting for actual action from an actual being. But I think what we have in the midst of that is we have the story, the whole story, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. I quote this in the book. I think it's the Catholic catechism, which I'm not Catholic, but I think this is, it says like the whole, in some ways, the entire redemption story is a response, is an answer, if there is an answer, to the problem of evil. How do we live in a world of darkness and yet trust God? It has to be that we find the answer to that living and knowing and, and, and sort of embodying this whole story of redemption. And yet part of that story is that we are very much in the already not yet. Like things aren't set right yet, not, not wholly or not entirely. And so we live in our very bodies with that kind of tension and longing and waiting so where I go with the book is that we have the story, but it's not enough to be like, okay, we hold this story in our brains. And so when things are like really dark or you have broken friendships in your life, or you're even just dealing with like the ordinary grief of a day, like we need not just a story in our brains, but we need to enter the story to be able to walk into the story. I think the best way to talk about it is to be able to put the weight of our lives on this story and on the love of God. And we do that through Christian practices like prayer, like I think the Eucharist. I don't really get into that in the book. Christian practices allow us to hold the absolute truth of the brokenness of the world, of how vulnerable things are, of how dark things are, how messed up things are, and hold God and God's goodness and God's beauty. And we're holding them together. In almost every single Christian practice, you see this tension of holding both of these, the truth of our fallenness and the truth of God's redemption. So in the book, it's sort of like, how do we endure this mystery? It's through this story, but it's by placing the weight of our lives on the story through these practices. That's some of that. But at the end of the day, honestly, the story ends in consummation and redemption. And so there's not an explanation 
given for evil or darkness or suffering. There's not an explanation in the scriptures for like why I had miscarriages or why we have broken friendships or people die or people get sick or why COVID exists. There's hope that God will like judge and put to death every force that is contrary to his goodness, that in the end, Jesus will destroy death. Jesus will destroy disease. Jesus will destroy COVID. So we don't have like a little tidy, here's the theological reason we have a hope that everything that is contrary to the goodness of God will be subdued by Jesus. Does that help you sleep? (laughs) Um, Sometimes. I mean... Like, that's the thing is like, that doesn't, so it's still sometimes uh, things hurt and that's real, but yeah, it helps me sleep. And more so, I think it helps me stay awake in the dark without going to numbing myself. It, It allows me to not numb myself to the world or to my own grief and pain. I think part of the way we endure this mystery that I talk about a lot in the book is through actually letting ourselves grieve the way that things aren't right right now. So it's not like, oh, Jesus is going to set things right. So let's, you know, go skip and hum a merry tune. But I do think that Jesus is going to set things right. And so we can grieve this knowing that we can say, honestly, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. And we can hope for better. And that is something I think really unique in the Christian faith. If there is no God, we still have evil. We still have darkness. There's still suffering. What uh, hope I find in Jesus is that's not the final note. That's not the last word. There is more. But if that's the case, then there's something really true about grief. After COVID hit and which is my book was written entirely before it was written like 2018 at the beginning of 19. So it was before I I had no idea what coronavirus was. No one did, but so it's not addressed in the book, but when that all hit here and we were walking through that, my husband and I are both in ministry and, you know, it just felt wrong. It felt wrong to try to minister to people over zoom And it became kind of a saying in our house. I would say, you know, it feels wrong because it is wrong. Um, (laughs) That there is this sense that like we were not made for this. We were not created for a world where we are isolated because of illness and death. I can say that because of the Christian story. Without it, it's like, well, the world just is the way it is. And so let's make ourselves as comfortable as possible. It's because of the gospel, and that's the other way of saying the Christian story, that I can say, no, there's something really true and holy about this longing for things to be better. It's right. It's real. And things feel wrong because they are wrong. Like, this isn't the way things are meant to be. What did you learn about yourself in this process? The process of writing this book. And living through the grief, the lonely nights. That's a really good question. Okay, so two things. No one's actually asked me this. This is a really good question. My expectations of life are lower, (laughs) and my expectations of God are higher. 
if that makes sense. Like, I feel like I, I think that I have enough privilege, I guess, or things that I'm very grateful for parents that love me. I've never experienced deep poverty. And also I really do think this, but a friend said, you know, everyone in the American church to a greater or lesser extent has sort of been like influenced by the prosperity gospel, whether we would like to be or not. Maybe everyone is too extreme, but many of us have it. And, and I would be the first one to be like, you know, super down on the prosperity gospel. It's a heresy. It's not true. But there's a subtle part of me that thinks, you know, if I do the right thing, that God's going to like make my life work out. It's tricky with me because it doesn't look like having a big house and, you know, whatever in the suburbs, like the typical American dream. But for me, it's like free time. It's like freedom. It's like my own sort of fantasy of what life should look like, which is much more like kind of hippie and contemplative than the American dream. So it can seem holier, but it's still this sort of like my own kind of like, this is how my life should be, right? It's my own little personal tish dream. And I can think, maybe I'm not owed that, but I can think that abundant life in Jesus looks like this one thing that I have defined. And like I say, this is absolutely ordinary suffering. There's a whole genre of folks who have lost children, who've experienced like really intense abuse or illness or had been widowed at a young age. Those are really good and important books. This is not that. This is like ordinary grief that all of us go through, that even sort of privileged people or people with very good lives experience. Certainly the book's not like, I went through this hard thing and this is what I learned. That's not the book. The book is actually more grappling with questions of like, why does God allow vulnerability at all? Like whatever that looks like, whether that's, you know, you break your leg or you have a fatal illness. Anyway, so that's my caveat. But I'll still say, like, I think that even in the best of lives, the fall, the brokenness of the world is like always there. In the best of days, even there is grief, there is brokenness, there is loss, like it's just unavoidable. So in some sense, my expectation of the future is like, there'll be loneliness in it, there'll be brokenness in it. But I think in a way that wasn't true before, this book, I'm like, really, the only hope is that Jesus will make things new. All my eggs are in that basket. All my hope is on that, that this story that we claim as Christians, it's ride or die. Like, it really is like the way we put our lives on this hope of the resurrected Christ. And that's it. We don't put our lives on the hope of the American dream. We don't put our lives on the hope of you know, that this, this can lend some good, like, devotion and spirituality to our otherwise privileged life. At the end, our hope is only Jesus. And so with that, there has to be a lot of stripping away of all my false hopes that I still, you know, sort of white knuckle desperately cling to, but that God really is worth trusting, that he's strong enough to hang your life on, to set your life on. I have a friend who really went through, she, she was a missionary overseas. She was a doctor and for years was in a place of intense poverty and saw a lot of death, particularly a lot of women and children die. I said, what did you learn or how did you continue in the faith during that? And she said something like, more than ever, I know that God is faithful, but he's less predictable than I ever thought. And so I think in the same way, I can't predict God and I can't control God and I can't demand or 
negotiate with God. But at the end of the day, like God is faithful and he sees us. And that's, that's really the only hope we got. Like that's it. Is that enough? I think it is enough. I really do. And in some of this, honestly, okay, I'm just going to be really vulnerable here. I think I can say that's enough, but I've only experienced the truth of that. Maybe like 60, 70% in my life. And the other is filled in by saints who are older than me or have lived before me or have walked through things I haven't telling me that God was enough in the midst of that. Like some of that is the testimony of others and seeing how God has changed other people's lives or sustained other people, because there's a lot I haven't walked through and there's a lot that still scares me. So this is why I come back again and again and again in this book to like the church, to like the people of God, not just like the institutional church, although I mean that too, but like these were prayers that were carried by people who went through the Black Plague, who have experienced pandemics, who had children die, who had real persecution, who have experienced brokenness and yet proclaim that God is good and faithful. So I think Jesus is enough. But honestly, that's also something I'm like betting my life on. Everyone bets their life on something. Every single person, like if an atheist is listening, like they're betting their life on something. I don't just mean in a Pascal's wager kind of way. They're like betting that there is no God and that there's no judgment. I mean, like the meaning of their life, like what they're living for. If there isn't the resurrection, I would live for completely different things, right? I would spend my time different, my money different. I would use my body differently. So I'm like living my life by this story. So I'm betting my life on this. And I think Jesus is enough. But that's coming from how God has been faithful to me. That honestly is. Like, it's not just that I hear he's faithful. It's how God has been faithful to me. It's the good things that Jesus has shown me. It's the hope of the resurrection. But it's also coming from seeing Jesus's faithfulness to the church through a lot of darkness. That these folks have walked through things. And these folks have felt pain that I haven't and uncertainty that I haven't. And they found God faithful in the midst of it. That's kind of my honest answer is like, I think he's enough. I'm living like he's enough. But I also think that it takes, I talk about in the book, like faith is a, and I believe this, it's a craft more than a feeling. So it's not just a feeling. It's something we enter into. And I think it's a lifelong craft. And so I'm sort of like, ask me when I'm 80, ask me when I'm 90, (laughs) if he's enough. I think it takes living this whole Christian life to know. But I mean, and so far, he's been enough and he is enough. And at the end of the day, I want to say this too. There's the story, right? This is like the made up story that your pastor uses in a sermon. And I'm going to use it now (laughs) because I'm a pastor. (laughs) But then, you know, there were three guys that were being chased by a bear or something. I don't know. This is not a true story. And ran to a cliff. And below them is like a lake that's frozen. And they don't know if the ice is going to hold them or not. But they're being chased by bears. There's nowhere to go. So the first guy, very tentatively, uncertain, jumps off. The ice holds. He runs across. He's safe. 
The second guy seeing that guy has more confidence, but still a little uncertain, jumps off, you know, is, is fine, safe, escapes the bear. The third guy, having seen the two guys in front of him with full confidence, hurls himself and the ice holds and he, he escapes. And the, the question is, which one is more saved? Well, they're all equally saved. And the, the first person was, un, was tentative. And the last person just threw himself. The, what saved them wasn't the faith that they had or the confidence they had. It was the actual thickness of the ice this reality outside of them. And so in some sense, I'm like, Jesus is enough, but it, it doesn't really matter what I say, right? It matters the <laughs> reality. thickness of, of reality, right? This is a reality and it's either true or not. But I am living my life trusting the thickness of the ice. Like I trust this reality. And there's a 92-year-old woman in my church. She's a priest. She's incredible. And she gave her final sermon at 90. And, you know, she's this humble woman that lived her whole life single, unmarried, and says in this very clear but old person voice, I can only say that the life that is in Jesus is the most beautiful life I can imagine. And he has always been faithful to me. And so, man, I want to know, I want to live my life finding out if that's true. Does that make sense? It does. Two things come to mind. One is borrowing the faith of others of sorts, that when I don't have faith, I can lean into your faith or, you know, the saints throughout history. The other thing that comes to mind is, do you have a better option? <laughs> I mean, this idea of having hope is, I, I don't know if it's enough. Certainly at times it doesn't feel like enough, but is there another option <laughs> at that point? As opposed to, you know, hopelessness and falling into despair, the weight of grief and tragedy. Yeah, I mean, I love that verse in scripture where I think it's Peter says like, Lord, where else will we go? Like, right. There is a sense of like, what, where, what else is there? And I will say too, like, and I, and this is hugely important, especially in 2017, 2018, when I was really struggling with the faith is, is wondering like, is Jesus resurrected from the dead? Like, in other words, the hope that I have is not that my life will go well. You know, the 90 year old woman saying Jesus has been faithful. It's not because she hasn't suffered. She has, but the hope isn't like that I'll feel good about things. In other words, this isn't just a leap in the dark. This is important, actually, especially in light of what I just said. It could seem like, well, we can't know anything. And so just like pick something and we're just doing this leap into the dark. But I really think like, the the thing that we have, especially when dealing with vulnerability and death, is that like we follow a God that became human and actually experienced vulnerability and death and then was resurrected and like walked around and people saw him and talked to him and he made fish apparently, which is amazing, right? That that's what the resurrected do is they make fish. He didn't fly. He made some <laughs> fish. Some fish. <laughs> so this isn't just a leap in the dark. This is like, there's like evidence for God's goodness that we have in the Christian faith. And that is the person of Jesus. So more and more and more, I came back to Jesus in the middle of this. When I say, how do you trust God when he doesn't stop bad things from happening to you? Like God didn't stop bad things from happening 
to God, (laughs) which is crazy. And so over and over again, I just kept coming back to like, Jesus knows what it is to die. I don't know what it is to die. I don't know what that's like, but Jesus knows what it is to die. He knows the physical sensation of cardiac arrest. Like, I don't know that. And I'm claiming God does. So this isn't like, you know, man, we have no idea. And we're just sort of hoping and leaping like the evidence that shows kind of the quote unquote thickness of the ice to use that is like an actual life of a human being that lived and experienced sickness and broken relationships and family conflict and loneliness and abstinence and all of this and then died feeling forsaken by the father and was resurrected. And so really our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That at the end of the day, the hope isn't kind of like a concept of, you know, like maybe we'll like live a spiritual life and that'll be rewarding. (laughs) Cause it'll sometimes be rewarding. It may not be rewarding that we ground our hope in the resurrection of Jesus and not, and not just the resurrection, the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. It's all in there. So the only hope we have that like, actually Jesus is going to make things new. Like that's not just a nice story to have a sleep better at night. It's not spiritual ambient or something (laughs) is that, (laughs) is that there was an actual resurrection If the story went, Jesus died and now he's dead and he's in a grave and we go back and visit his grave and his brother took over and led the rest of the Christians. And now, you know, his brother was the head of the disciples or something, which is what would normally happen with like a religious sect. Then it would just be like a story, like we hope someday, but they were claiming, no, like he actually rose from the grave. Then there's like some hope that maybe death doesn't have the last word. Like there's some hope that maybe it's not just who has the most money and who has the most power wins. The hope I have for the future is entirely rooted in the past, in the resurrection. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Tish, as we close, could you give us that prayer? The Compline? Yeah. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary. Bless the dying. Soothe the suffering. Pity the afflicted. Shield the joyous. And all for your love's sake. Amen. It's a good prayer. Thank you, Tish. And that was Tish Harrison Warren. Again, her book is titled Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. Invite you to join us in early February as the Renovare Book Club begins working with this text. You can find out more on the Renovare website. And you can learn more about Tish and her work at tishharrisonwarren.com. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. This podcast is made possible by donations from people like you. You can support this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. 
You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovarite.org, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing your questions or thoughts. You can email podcast at renovare.org or tweet at renovare. This podcast is produced by Brian Morcon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Other music is by Lee Rosevere. Until next time, be well, friends. Be well.